Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shigwigwani. Today on Raise the Line, I'm very happy to welcome Dr. David Moe, who's the Chief Medical Officer of Cerebral, a leading telemental health company serving hundreds of thousands of patients in all 50 states. David and I go way back to our college days, and it's been amazing to see his career trajectory and the impact he's made in psychiatry and digital health. Previously, he was president, co-founder, and chief medical officer of another company in the space, Valera Health, whose CEO, Dr. Thomas Sang, was a previous guest on Raise Line. Dr. Mo is on faculty at Harvard Medical School and is the director of the Innovations Council for Mass General Hospital's Psychiatry Department. His research interest is in using technology to predict and prevent suicidal behaviors. He earned his bachelor's degree and his MD and MBA from Harvard. So David, so good to see you again. Likewise, Shiv, it's been a while and great to reconnect. Congratulations again on the recent news. Thank you. And you too on Cerebral, there's a lot of news coming out of your space. So I'd like to start first with learning more about you and what first got you interested in psychiatry. Obviously, I know a bit more about this having gone way back with you, but for our audience. Absolutely. Yeah. So my interest in the brain started very early in college. I was a neuroscience major. I actually thought that I was going to be a lab rat. I was going to work in a wet lab for uh, most of my life. After college, I spent a year actually in France doing basic bench research. And when I came back from med school, I just fell in love talking with patients. And of all the rotations I did, it was very clear that psychiatry was the one where you had the privilege to sit down and learn about someone's life the most. And so therefore I chose psychiatry, loved doing residency uh, at uh, McLean and MGH. And now I'm on the entrepreneurial side of things. And you've retained a lot of your research interests. So I mentioned in your intro that you've done research on technology for suicide prevention. Can you tell us a bit more about maybe your research background and some of the work you've done there? Yeah. So one of the most, I would say, strangest things that I've known about the mental health space is how little we use data, period. If you have diabetes and you go to your endocrinologist and they say, well, we don't really follow outcomes, we don't really measure outcomes, you would get a new endocrinologist, you would find a new doctor. In mental health, that's not the case. Over 90% of clinicians just don't measure outcomes and that's just the state of the field. And it's not because we don't have outcome measures. We actually have outcome measures, we just don't use them as a field. And so when I first looked at the mental health space, I found these very empathetic people who would not measure outcomes and would tell me, well, we don't need to measure outcomes. We don't believe in evidence-based care. It was bewildering. It was strange. It was odd set of emotions that I had. And so for me, I became very interested in how can we measure care systematically, both on the research side, as well as on the entrepreneurial side. So the research side is how can we predict when someone's going to have suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And so I did some work with Matt Nock, who's the chair of psychology at Harvard, where he put these movement devices so we can track people, how they move, whether they're moving, whether they're shuddering, whether they're pacing or not. We're also asking them how suicidal they are every few hours. And what you'll find one of the big findings in his lab is that suicidal ideation is not something that's static. You know, typically we think about, are you suicidal or are you not? And we assume that it's static, but it actually changes hour to hour, day to day, which significantly affects how we should triage these patients and what we should do with them. Right. So that was the body of research that I was working on. And that's also the foundation of the data science that we're working with at Cerebral as well. I mean, it's definitely, it's fascinating. I remember 
you know, close to a decade ago, getting really excited about Ginger IO, which, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, and now they're part of Headspace or, or joined with them. And and even like, I think it was a two years ago, Netflix got a little bit of heat, but had this funny, but also controversial tweet about people who had been binge watching the same episode where like Netflix consumption behavior, I'm sure can predict depression or anxiety or those kind of things. But, you know, is that the type of data? I mean, movement data, what other data streams do you think are particularly effective at tracking mental health issues? Yeah. So just a piece of editorializing here. When you look at companies that like Netflix or Facebook or Google uh, using these behaviors, so your behaviors can be very predictive of your future behaviors, right? your current preferences, your current clicks, how long you scroll, how quickly you scroll, where do you stop scrolling? What do you stare at? That's all very predictive of your future behaviors. What do they use that data for? For the most part, to get you to buy something, to sell you something, to market something to you. That's the principle. The principle works, right? Why don't we use the same principle for good? Why don't we use that to predict when someone's going to respond to a treatment, whether they're going to respond to a certain medication or a set of medications, right? Maybe it could tell us that the dosage of the medication isn't quite right. Or maybe this patient doesn't have the right diagnosis and needs a therapist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the principle there certainly is true, which is a very small set of data can predict quite a few things. We should just use that for good instead of using it to market to people. So that's one thought. Um, what we find is that uh, patients have to tell you how they're doing in mental health. Otherwise, you don't know how they're doing. This is, again, using that diabetes example. It's not like blood sugar, where I can measure your blood sugar and know exactly how you're doing. We actually have to ask patients, are you feeling better? And they have to fill out those surveys. So just to get outcomes, you have to ask patients and get their engagement on these clinical surveys, right? So that's a step harder than a lab value, frankly. And so I can understand why it's been so challenging for the field to get there. But now that we have telehealth, now that we can send them a survey that's HIPAA compliant through a digital app, it should be very simple. And that's what we've been able to demonstrate, that you get much higher engagement with a digital app. So we have over 80% of our patients, hundreds of thousands of patients, filling out these surveys on a regular basis. So we have a very good understanding of who's benefiting from the treatment that they're getting and who's not just as importantly so that we can target those patients and make sure that they change the treatment plan so that they do get better. That's fascinating. And so, yeah, let's transition to the cerebral. I'd love to hear how that came to be and what the amazing scale that you all have achieved in such a short amount of time. So can you tell our audience a bit more about the company, your role in it, and what makes it unique and how you've scaled so quickly? Yeah, happy to talk about the journey. And frankly, I've been surprised by how quickly it's grown as well. And I would say there are two major reasons. One is operations. It's really being tight with operations. When you start a company, everyone has these objectives and key results, really sticking to those and operating against them and doing very well and moving very, very quickly with the market. The other half of this is luck to be honest with you. We started during a time when telehealth became open and the pandemic hit. And so the demand skyrocketed. You know, just to give you a sense, before COVID, 90% of mental health professionals never use telehealth, only 10% have. Literally within a month, it was the opposite. 90% of clinicians were using telehealth and 10% were not, right? So that type of seismic shift, that type of crisis really invites a lot of opportunity. And we were able to hit that on stride. And that's how we've been able to grow so quickly. Where we differentiate is really on quality. So the cerebral 
value proposition, I would argue. One is access. So we could get patients to care very, very quickly within days. Two to three days is average. This is across all 50 states. We're able to get more than 2,000 clinicians now. We're launching the UK as well. The second part is I think what we really differentiate is quality. Like I mentioned earlier, we measure outcomes in all of our patients, and we have industry-leading outcomes in terms of depression, anxiety. We look at ADHD as well. And when you focus on quality, it opens up a few new opportunities that I think are very unique. One, you can move into serious mental illness. I feel comfortable treating patients with bipolar disorder because, well, as you may know, bipolar disorder has some of the highest suicide rates of any uh, diagnosis period. We're able to do that because we have a very robust safety system built internally that's completely data-driven. Every safety response is audited. For example, any clinician who's dealing with a patient who's suicidal can activate this crisis line. And within minutes, someone internal, a specialist that just focuses on safety is on the same line, helping to triage the patient, making sure that the patient ends up somewhere safe, calls emergency contact, et cetera, et cetera. That's one of many examples. But the idea here is if you really focus on quality, it helps you play in arenas that others won't touch. So if you look up bipolar disorder online treatment, you won't find anyone else. It's just us. And I could talk about the positive knock-on effects of that. One, you take good care of these patients. These are the most disenfranchised, the neediest patients, number one. And number two, the insurance companies begin to pay attention because the insurance companies, for the longest time, they love the fact that anyone is helping them take care of mental health. But then what they realize is the vast majority of companies only take care of mild, moderate depression, anxiety. They skim the easiest patients. And the second they say, oh, I have a substance use disorder. I have bipolar disorder. I have, I'm suicidal. They refer them out. And so the insurance companies are thinking, well, we want someone who can take care of as many of our members as possible. And that's how we're able to get uh, coverage with 80 million lives right now with many of the major insurance companies all within a few months, right? So that's what also helps us scale. When you focus on quality, it really gives you access to a scale that otherwise would be very difficult. That's incredible. I mean, obviously you both got our MBAs, HBS, and there's that talk about the triangle. You know, it's, it's speed, quality, and price. And you can optimize for two of the three. And so I guess that begs the question too, because you guys are amazingly quick at pairing patients with qualified mental health professionals, which by the way, I'm also curious how you recruit and train. I mean, that's part of your role, I assume, as chief medical officer, recruit and train these health professionals, especially given that there's so many digital mental health companies trying to go after the same set of professionals because we have a shortage. That's why we call this podcast Raise Line. We need to train more healthcare professionals, social workers, mental health counselors, psychiatrists, obviously psychologists. So that's a two-part question of like, you know, you've been able to optimize on quality and access price. I assume if you're doing the hard things, the insurance company is hopefully happy to cover it because it's still tele mental health. So maybe a little cheaper to deliver than in person. But then the second is how do you recruit and train and what's the value prop for these healthcare professionals to join Cerebral versus Headspace or some other digital health company, or maybe they do both. Yeah, it comes back to quality. I'm going to sound like a broken record. But when you create a system built for quality, it actually helps out all the stakeholders involved. Let me give you an example. So if you're a clinician, let's say you're a prescriber and you join Cerebral, you get a lot of clinical support. You're the most supported clinician, I would argue, in any mental health clinic. So let me name what the supports are. First of all, everyone has access to what we call the curbside consult line. This curbside consult line is staffed by psychiatrists 12 hours a day, seven days a week. At any point you run into a case, it's a challenging case, we don't care who you are. You could be a psychiatrist, you could be a nurse practitioner. If it's a challenging case, you could call this curbside consult line and get a response within an hour from another psychiatrist. It's a second opinion and it's almost always there. 
So that's one pillar of support. Another pillar of support is the crisis response. Within minutes, you can have access to a crisis specialist to help you triage a case so it doesn't blow up your afternoon. You know, typically, as many mental health professionals would know, if I have a suicidal patient at 1 p.m., I've got to clear my own schedule. I clear it completely out in order to manage that, make sure they show up in the emergency room, et cetera, et cetera. You don't have to do that. We have people to help you do that. These are crisis specialists and their coordinators on the other side to help you out. Third, I would say, is we have a lot of educational materials that are completely free to our clinicians. So that's office hours. I actually hold an office hour every once in a while. We get up to date. We buy up to date for everyone. It's not cheap, but we do it for everyone because we very much believe in evidence-based care. I think we are the only telehealth company that has an incident reporting and an m and a morbidity and mortality rounds taken from the hospital systems where we go through cases where we could have done better. Right? And that's a really helpful system for us to continually learn. And probably the most important thing I'll say for last is this quality report that every clinician sees every month. And it's not some generic, non-actionable data. It's my specific patient panel and how they're doing. So of the depressed patients I'm, I'm treating, how are they doing? Of my anxiety to patients, how are they doing? And not only that, we have specific, here are the top 10 patients who are hotspotters who started very depressed and they still remain very depressed. You should go talk to them. This is very actionable data, right? That clinicians would get and be able to reach out to certain patients, right? Within the same report, we have anonymized patient feedback. Within the same report, we randomly check charts and have psychiatrists give feedback on those charts. Within the same report, we have process things such as, hey, did you order the right labs for the bipolar patient who's on lithium, which requires lab monitoring? right? All within one readable report that's less than two pages long. And we give it to them month on month on month. And so the idea here is that we empower clinicians with data to practice high-level medicine. And they like that. Clinicians like that. They don't want to do the scut work of scheduling. They don't want to be hampered by the current systems that prevent them from providing good care. So that's how we're able to attract clinicians. And that's how we're able to keep them as well. That's really very compelling. And actually, there's a former Raiseline guest who, who you may know, Dr. Richard Park from Ascent Partners. And before that, he helped scale CityMD, those urgent care clinics in New York, very successful, who it's one of my favorite episodes, in addition to this one now, of how, as a chief medical officer, as someone trying to scale care with quality first and then access as well, how you can do that and having those reports, like you just said, is essential because, you know, as Lord Kelvin said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, you can't improve. And clearly it sounds like that's what you guys are focusing on. So some of these are showing up clearly with how quickly you scale, the results you have. Can you talk to us a bit about two of the big pieces of news that came out of Cerebral in the last few weeks? One was obviously the big round you just raised and how you plan to use that and continue scaling it because you're already in all 50 states. You have 80 million covered lives. That's amazing. You said you launched in the UK, so it's probably some internationalization going on. And number two, your chief impact officer now is Simone Biles. So obviously that was big news. Congrats on, on bringing her on. Can you talk to us a bit about her role? How is she shaping what you all do at Cerebral? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'll take the second question first. So we're just so honored to have Simone on board as a chief impact officer. First off, Simone could have chosen any company. There were 20 mental health companies that were calling her. I think it was 
we just feel very privileged to be that one that she chose. And it came down to quality. She actually looked at us and she looked at the outcomes. She actually is probably a patient of ours as well. This is not just some, she signed off on it and she thinks it's good. And she, uh, she actually uh, uses the service. And I should just say that she is one of the most wonderful people I've I've met. She is modest, kind, open to learning new things, very curious about how to support certain efforts and very passionate about this message for mental health. And I was just blown away by her as a human being and certainly as an athlete, like the, everyone. Um, but she's been absolutely fantastic. And we're, we're just very privileged to have that partnership. In terms of the funding, it's been really interesting. We're at about a quarter million patients today, but we want to touch millions and millions and tens of millions of Americans and be able to provide access to care for all of these people. The average wait time is still in the months. This is for if you want to see a therapist or a prescriber, it takes months for you to really see someone. And not only that, it's not tailored care, right? It's the next man up, next woman up, whoever's available will see you. Right? Whereas we're trying to mash you with someone, let's say you come in and you're saying, I want an African-American therapist who is trained in trauma-informed care, who is from the South, we can honor that because we have data on our clinicians as we do on our patients. So in order to scale that model up so that we can take care of tens of millions of patients, that's where most of the money is going to go towards. Because in order to manage that, qual manage that quality, manage that safety, that's certainly very, very important. International is an important market for us. It's tied to quality as well. So when we showed this data to the chair of the NHS, the National Health System in the UK, he came over, we had a sit down and he said, this is great. We'd love to help you guys expand into the UK. And so now we're doing that in a big way. We just won a grant there. And you know, the other thing is that, this is what I mentioned earlier, we want to be in every behavioral health condition so that no patient has to be referred out. And maybe just to zero in on how traumatic that is, right? When you have to refer someone out, they go to your service, they build a relationship with a therapist, they're spilling their guts in front of the therapist and their therapist is being helpful. And all of a sudden they say, oh yeah, by the way, I had this thing. Oh, that's a manic episode. You gotta go, you gotta go. Well, where, well, well I'm sorry, where do I go? I don't know, but you can't be here. This is a safety risk. I'm sorry, goodbye. This is the last visit. I'm gonna discharge you right now. That's what happens to thousands of people who are on these platforms where they only treat mild and moderate illness. There's no referral pattern, right? So I've seen that firsthand. I've seen a lot of patients who come to us who are traumatized by that. And they would say things, they would ask questions like, are you going to abandon me? Well, where did that come from? Oh, I got abandoned earlier by this service, by that service, right? So won't need names, but the idea here is that in order to be a truly quality driven service, you have to treat substance use disorders. You just have to treat serious mental illness, like bipolar disorders, psychotic disorders. You have to treat children and adolescents who are suffering a lot because that's what, if, some, if mom and dad are depressed and it's coming from a lot of uh, family issues, if to not treat that is to turn a blind eye to where the real problem is. So a lot of our resources will be invested in expanding those service lines. And the last piece is clinical trials. Happy to talk about that, but that's a little bit you know, off the beaten path. So uh, maybe I'll leave it at that for now. No, I'd love to hear about that. That's very compelling. But yeah, the clinical trials you all are doing, I'm sure our audience would, would be very interested. Yeah. So we are the first telehealth company that is running a clinical trial. We're actually running a clinical trial with a biotech company. And you have to imagine, why would a pharmaceutical company want to partner with a telehealth company when they can partner with a Harvard or a Stanford or these very well-renowned brick and mortar clinics? Again, comes down to quality. We have metrics on our patients. We have metrics on how our clinicians act process-wise, that 
are so high resolution that we can A, recruit patients faster, and B, engage them at a higher level so they drop out of these trials at a lower rate. This is just music to pharma companies. And so when they hear that, they're very interested in working with us. And so it's, again, I told you I'm going to sound like a broken record. When you really, really focus on quality, it opens up all these different business lines and opportunities for you to grow. And certainly, I can't say that I had the foresight to say, hey, we're going to provide really good telehealth care, and then we're going to run a clinical trial in nine months. That wasn't the idea. But certainly, once we had the infrastructure to do that, it became a no-brainer. And so we're really doing the first clinical trial that's fully decentralized, meaning we go to the patient's home, not asking the patient to go up to the clinic. We actually put EEGs, get blood tests, we're giving them Fitbits to measure their activity in order to see whether this specific drug for depression really works for a subset of the population. So this is the first step towards precision psychiatry. Instead of carpet bombing your entire population with one drug and hoping to see a small effect, the idea here would be to find one subpopulation based on all of those diagnostic data that really, really benefits from the intervention and then targeting that specific subpopulation for FDA-approved clinical trials going forward. That's extremely exciting. And since, since we brought up clinical trials and psychiatry, like one thing that's emerging in the mental health space, as you're well aware, we're very well connected to like our, my board member, Mitch Rothschild, his wife is Rachel Yehuda, who is a National Academy of Medicine, Mount Sinai, runs the PTSD treatment for veterans. And one thing that she and many other clinical trial sites are doing is bringing back MDMA-assisted therapy, psilocybin, things I'm sure you guys are familiar with. I don't know if this has reached telehealth yet in terms of clinical trials, but as maybe just you as a psychiatrist or you wearing the cerebral hat, what are your thoughts on this reemergence of psychedelic-assisted therapies? In a word, I'm very bullish. So uh, full disclosure, so I am an advisor to Compass Pathways, and I'm also on the Neuroscience Executive Council for Janssen, Johnson Johnson's company that made Spravato or Esketamine. So very bullish. I would just put it this way. If you think about a new antidepressant, it barely, the signal, the effect size of the antidepressant versus placebo is always small. For psychedelics, it's massive. It's absolutely massive. The question for those business models is not actually in the effect size. It's in commercialization. How do I commercialize that in a correct manner? So in a word, very bullish and certainly something that we love to engage with in a safe way. There are ways to do this safely and there are ways to do it unsafely, right? These are also medications with certain side effects. I would say argue that it's not just the med, it's also the setting and the presence of a guide or presence of experts to manage rare situations that should be there for these clinical trials. So, but definitely willing to engage. As a matter of fact, we have some announcements in the coming weeks that may have something to do with this. That's exciting. We'll definitely watch this space. I know we're coming up on time. Uh, if you have time for two more questions, one is obviously you're a clinician. COVID has been very difficult. Part of why we call this raise the line. It's not just flattening the curve, helping people avoid COVID and other diseases and disorders. It's also raising the line and strengthening healthcare capacity, which includes training more healthcare workers, as mentioned, but also keeping the ones in practice in the space. And we've known for many years that there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of, I mean, unfortunately, suicide among physicians and other healthcare providers. You know, what are your thoughts on addressing that? Maybe I'm sure a lot of them are cerebral patients uh, as well. That's a great question. It's such an important issue, Shiv. You know, one of the saddest things that got me quite upset and angry was that I remember that there were residents, uh, so training doctors who would call me and they're suicidal and they couldn't get care and they couldn't get time off work to seek care. 
and they're going to work suicidal. And I'm thinking, and this is not coming from the hospital where I trained, but I got these calls and I said, well, can't you say something? Like, oh, they, I, I've said, I've tried, they don't care. They just don't care. They're just, you know, they said, go on. And so, well, even an in their group that would have access to care, but they wouldn't seek it for a very good reason. At first I said, well, you have care, why don't you seek it? Well, it's in the same health system. So the person that they're seeing may be a co-resident or a residence in a different program, but really they might run into each other during lunch. Right? There's good reason why I think care for physicians and health care professionals in general is really hard to access. So it's a real problem because their insurance are covered by their hospital system. So there is a real challenge here, I would argue. And so to tell them, okay, go find someone in a different hospital is a little bit unfair. And I frankly just have not seen this problem solved at scale. And I'm open to solutions here. We're thinking about donating a certain amount of care to underprivileged people first, but then eventually maybe it's health professionals would be a good next target, but that's not a scalable solution, frankly. So I'm really open to ideas. And if your listeners have ideas here, this is personal to me. I've seen a number of my friends suffer pretty badly from this. And each time I have to go out and find them individual clinicians or refer them in uh, to Cerebral, which it shouldn't have to be the case if they're physicians, but I don't have an answer to that, unfortunately. Yeah, it's uh, definitely consistent. I mean, as you know, I was in med school too, and a lot of my friends who went on med school, residency, not just for mental health conditions, but you know everything from orthopedic to OBGYN have these issues pop up, and it's a really perverse incentive for sure. Hopefully our listeners will have ideas. Maybe they can contact you or, or others and, and talk about this. My last question is, speaking of our listeners, we have many people who are entering careers in healthcare who are listening to Raise Line and followers of Osmosis. What advice would you give to them? And then is there anything else that you want them to know about you, about Cerebral, about the space that you'd like to leave as final words? Yeah, so I would say right now, it's an unprecedented time in healthcare innovation. It's a great time to get involved, regardless of what specialty you're interested in. Spaces are getting disrupted at alarming pace, some for good, some for bad. And I hope that when you as good clinicians come on board, gear it towards good in every specialty. So I would say this is a particularly good time to get involved. And involvement doesn't mean jump off and become uh, go to startups full time. This could be advising. This could be going to events and just talking to people who are in this space. Um, I advise that more so than jumping off and doing your own thing at the very beginning. And then once you get a feel for the space, you can begin to become an entrepreneur like Shiv and take it from there, right? So I would say this is just a really unprecedented time. Uh, for those of you who are interested in behavioral health specifically, we have one of the most active job boards out there. So if you just look up Cerebral, we're at getcerebral.com. And you can look at the job descriptions if you want to work in a very fast-growing mental health company. We definitely welcome great clinicians across the board, psychiatrists especially, but certainly we actually take primary care docs as well. As you know, we're moving into substance use disorders and in other illnesses as well, where primary care doctors have a lot of experience. So yeah, thank you, Shiv, for having me on. And this has been a lot of fun. David, thanks so much again for joining us and more importantly for the work that you're doing to raise lines. So really appreciate your time. Really good to reconnect. And with that, I'm Shifiglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. 
You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>